Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on the line today, we've got a very special guest from the UK, Grace Blakely. Grace, thanks so much for joining us on The Society. How are you? Thanks for having me, Adam. I am very well. I saw you at the World Transformed Conference, which for listeners out there, if you don't know what that is, we're going to get into that in great detail, so have no fear. But you're on stage giving Ed Miliband, uh, former prime minister of the UK, the business about finance. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you were up to at the World Transform Conference this past week. <laughs> sure. What a, what a great intro. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my day job, I'm a researcher at a kind of left-leaning think tank in the UK called the Institute for Public Policy Research. And I focus on kind of macroeconomics and particularly financial economics. I'm currently on sabbatical writing a book about financialization and particularly focused on the UK context. And I'm also very active in the Labour Party. So I'm on our national policy forum, which is kind of a national policymaking body. And I'm kind of active locally and in things like London Young Labour and Momentum. I'm currently, uh, as I said, in the process of writing this book, which I guess we can get on to talking about a bit later. In answer to your question, why I was giving Ed Miliband the business. The business, the business. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was on this panel with him, Richard Leonard, who's the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, and Lisa Nandy, who's kind of like a middle of the road Labour MP, and also Martin O'Neill from a journal here in the UK called Renewal. Mm-hmm. And we Fantastic were chatting. Journal, by the way, folks should check out Renewal Journal for sure. Yeah, definitely. Check it out. And yeah, we were chatting about kind of future labor economic policy. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the kind of things that um, on economics we've been discussing in the UK. But a lot of it is, you know, kind of, I mean, currently the Labour Manifesto as it stands is pretty standard social democratic reform. Um, some of the stuff that's coming out at the moment, like John McDonnell's announcements or Don McDonnell, as you called him earlier. Don McDonnell. Don McDonnell. <laughs> the other absolute boy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. His announcements on ownership are, you know, pushing things a little bit further. But my whole argument and the argument that I put forward in my book is that you can't think of a kind of dramatic transformation in the kind of regime that governs the economy, the kind of mode of accumulation, without really tackling head on the power relations that sustain the existing system. And for me, you know, we live under a regime of financialization, of finance-driven accumulation. And so uh, any attempt to kind of move beyond that requires really, as I said to Ed Miliband, taking on the banks. I think I said <laughs> that um, Labour needs to take on the banks the way Thatcher took on the unions. So, yeah. I like the spirit. I like the aggression, the seriousness <laughs> with which you uh, approach this project. But you, but you used a word as you were just starting your introduction. And I, I think I've heard it before. And I want to be sure that I'm not losing my U.S. audience because I do have an international audience. I was going to say this is your first podcast in the U.S., correct? It is. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. My debut. Yeah. As we said off air, I now get to take credit for all of the success that you have on the North American <laughs> And a portion of the profits, of course. Uh, yes. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> A big windfall coming my way. But you use this word. I want to spell it out for people. Uh, Tell me if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Sabbatical? (laughs) Sabbatical. Yes. I read about it. I was reading like memoirs of academics in the US, like from the 1950s. And it's like something that I feel like we used to have. Hey, don't romanticize it too much because it is an unpaid sabbatical. So I'm living off like, Ah, you know, writing. They're just giving you a break from working. They're giving me a break. And they'll take you back. And they'll take me back, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, that's great. Yeah, and I mean it's it's easy to romanticize the left uh, from from countries you know looking uh, looking from the outside oh. looking in, but yeah, no, that's great. So you're writing this book. We'll get back to that for sure in great detail as the interview goes on. But let's let's just kind of start off with the political moment that you find yourself in. Uh, one one that's fraught, I think, with a great deal of uh, contradiction and you know uncertainty. Mm. But it's the kind of moment that we all live for, and to be engaged in that process, particularly at this phase of your life, has to be an incredibly exciting, enthralling prospect. And I want to paint a picture for people over here who are at kind of at an arm's length from that process, from that moment. Talk to us a little bit about the World Transform Conference. Who puts that on? It was there's a tremendous amount of excitement around the conference. There's a spirit of innovation. Mm. And, and, and the, 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 the palpable uh, feeling of, on the one hand, charting new ground mm. and on the other hand, returning to a lost tradition yeah. of the labor left, of the, of the Benite to Tony Benn uh, style labor left. And we had mm. Max Shanley on the show some months ago talking quite a bit about Tony Benn and his legacy mm. in the labor party. So there's this dual prong kind of like on the one hand, you're charting new territory. On the other hand, returning to a lost tradition. And I think that provides a, a lot of content for moving forward. So paint a picture for the listeners. What was the World Transformed uh, Conference like and what does that signify uh, for the political movement uh, that you find yourself in today? Sure. So, I mean, the World Transformed, TWT, as we call it here, was uh, incredible. I mean, it seems to get better and better every year. I think it's been going on for about three years now. And we managed to get academics, activists, um, intellectuals, politically engaged people from all over the country and actually all over the world to kind of come together at this event parallel to the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. And the Labour Party conference is something that happens every year where delegates from local Labour parties come and, you know, vote on motions and and try and make decisions. And it becomes this kind of, you know, little mini universe for um, everyone on the left. And having this kind of parallel thing where the social movement that has emerged around the Labour Party can um, come together and talk about ideas and discuss the kind of, as you said, the, the particular moment we find ourselves in. Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. And listeners can kind of go and have a look at TWT on Twitter. They've recorded a load of their sessions, so you can have a look at some of those. So I did that one with Ed Miliband and and others. I chaired a panel, actually, with our favourite person, Leo Panich, as well as Anne Pettifer and Don McDonnell came along as well, which was amazing. Uh, So it was just really exciting. And like, what was... Quite a star-studded panel there. It was amazing. It was like the highlight of my year, honestly. I was so happy. Like to get all three of those back on the podcast at some some point. Anne Pettifer has written quite a bit on finance, the economy, democratizing, that sort of thing as well. Mm. Um, So a lot of exciting things going on there. Tell us a little bit about the base of power mm. represented at TWT, because I think that's what, what what interests me the most. On the one hand, yeah. um, where is this coming from in terms of top down? Obviously, this is an event that happened um, in conjunction with the Labor Party conference. Is it, is it momentum that's behind this primarily? Is this an initiative sort of headed off by uh, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell? Um, and, and what's the social base here? Who mm. comprised the audience? It's my understanding there were mm. approximately 6,000 people that attended TWT uh, at some point uh, throughout the, the conference. So tell us a little mm. bit about that, if you don't mind. I'd like to discuss that in light of the kind of first question you have, which is like, what is this political moment that's going on right now? And I think the best way to kind of be able to get a grip on like, you know, why this moment is particularly exciting is to look at it in terms of both the structural argument as to why we've got this space and also the momentum around the movement itself. So that kind of dialectic between structure and agency is pretty powerful Mm -hmm. on the UK left at the moment, because of course we're in this very, it's a cliche, but we're in this very Gramscian moment. The old model after 2007 of finance driven growth is effectively dead. And you see this coming up in, you know, all the statistics around uh, how the economy is working. So wages have 
stagnated for the last 10 years. We've got a very serious productivity problem, which um, American economists, uh, with which I'm sure you're, you're very familiar, like Larry Summers, have decided to call secular stagnation, but which, you know, actually derives primarily from the breakdown of debt fueled consumption driven growth that was fueling a lot of the kind of economic dynamism that we saw pre-crisis. Right. And so, we're, yeah, we're in this kind of weird interregnum where a lot of politicians, policymakers are attempting to go back to the old. So implementing big interventions like quantitative easing or trying to revive that property only democracy model that Thatcher implemented so successfully, but, you know, with much less success. And we're obviously in the middle of a big housing crisis, which underlies a big part of the kind of generational dynamic that is propelling this movement forward. So you've got this big structural crisis, uh, a hangover from 2007. But what we've also had in the UK, which is maybe unique, is a massive social movement that has emerged in and around and successfully, well, is successfully taking over an established political party. And obviously, you've seen a lot of social movements come around to try and take advantage of this this crisis, you know, all around Europe, various parts of the world. What's particularly unique about the UK case, that within, you know, we have two political parties, because we have this majoritarian electoral system, we're only ever going to have two really two main political parties, other than kind of geographically isolated ones. Mm -hmm. And so the Labour Party has this tradition of bringing together various different parts of the left, just like the Democrats does in America. But we're kind of more of a, you know, the way the the Democratic Party is often described to me is less as a kind of continuous, coherent body and more just kind of groups of people that kind of come together in different formations at different points in the electoral cycle. Whereas Labour is this kind of continuous body that exists and is able to A, exert a fair amount of power in, you know, parliamentary terms and at that kind of top down level. And which is also now because of some of the reforms that we saw actually under Ed Miliband, one of the biggest party in, in Europe, because we've had this massive expansion in the membership. And so that combination of the kind of the emergence of this social movement and its successful integration with a historical left party mm-hmm. is really holding the left together in the UK, kind of, you know, with a lot of different caveats to that and, you know, a lot of disagreements and challenges, not least around Brexit. But that's kind of holding the left together based on the idea that not only is power achievable and that we might actually, you know, get control of the reins of the state and be able to use it to fundamentally rebalance power in the UK away from capital and towards Labour, but also that that is grounded in a movement in which people in which activists are able to exert a big influence over how that will develop. And that has been historically in the Labour Party, the relationship between the movement and the party central to the kind of debate between the right and the left. So this question of whether or not it's possible to have parliamentary socialism, whether or not it's possible to have a really radical socialist party undergirded by a strong social movement that can hold it to account within the British state is an enduring question on the political left. And it's something that we are coming to terms with again now. I'm sure when you spoke to Max, you um, you heard a lot about that then. But, you know, things like the Democracy Review, which is a look into the kind of internal processes and and democratic structures within the Labour Party, are getting us hopefully slowly with, you know, fits and starts and this constant struggle against the powers that be are getting us hopefully towards a place where we might actually be able to envision that kind of ideal of, of parliamentary socialism. Wow. There's a, there's a lot there. You just sort of wind you up and you go, it's fantastic. I did tell you that at the beginning, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you're like socialist rain man, except you have like (laughs) the delivery of Kiera Knightley. Uh, Why? Thank you. (laughs) 
Uh, it's fantastic. Anyway, uh, th- there's a lot there. Um, so let's get into this by way of making some comparisons with the Democratic Party in the United sure. States, given that uh, four-fifths of my audience are here in the U.S. Mm. Many people are watching the British situation with bated breath, mm. uh, sort of excitedly uh, looking for a lead in terms of the, what you're providing and, and the experience that you're going through. We're living vicariously through that situation. Mm. So a lot of people will be familiar with those processes. But at the same time, you know, the Democratic Party, as you mentioned, is an electoral project primarily. It's one that organizes donors. It siphons money and influence. Mm. Um, It doesn't have the kind of embedded party structures, for better or for worse, as they exist or or not Mm. in uh, the British context. Um, I mean, there are some local parties, uh, chapters that that operate in various ways in local elections, but uh, it's certainly not coordinated in the way that the, the UK Labour Party is. So, one of the correctives that was actually offered from the audience, from a recorded session that I remember, and I, I, I watched it because Julia Salazar from over here, she uh, mm-hmm. was uh, all but elected uh, yeah. to the uh, New York State Senate, which is very exciting. She beat uh, an incumbent in a really nasty uh, election that sort of will, uh, I think, set the stage for some progressive challenges to come. Uh, we had Lee Carter. Who, a uh, friend of the show, is a guy I brought on the Dead Pundit Society uh, almost a year ago. Mm. Uh, he's uh, from the great state of Virginia, <laughs> former capital of the Confederacy. Mm. Uh, <laughs> having a socialist here is just really odd, uh, you know. But uh, so they were at uh, the World Transform Conference as well. And um, a lot of people were sort of fetishizing, I think, the, the, the late UK Labor Party experience. And someone rightly, and she, it, was a, it was a woman, she seemed to be maybe the boomer generation, judging from her intervention and the quality of her voice and whatnot. I'm just I'm <laughs> guessing. I'm, I'm stereotyping. <laughs> but, but she sort of chimed in rightly and she said, no, 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 you guys shouldn't fetishize the UK Labor Party. Like this isn't something that just sort of happened overnight, mm. right? So this is this is been the process of trying to take hold of the Labour Party and trying to transform it and democratize it has been something that's been underway for a very, very long Mm. time. And we can go back to Tony Benn in the 70s and 80s, but we could just as easily go back to the reforms that Ed Miliband put in place. So so tell us a little bit about, let's go from Miliband to present in terms of the efforts to democratize the party. What kind of reforms did Miliband bring in? Who were the social forces that ushered in those forms and how do Mm. they have some contradictory effects for what came next. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think when you're looking at what's happened in the Labour Party over the last however many years, you've got to think about this. And again, I think this is why she's probably right to say we shouldn't romanticise it. You've got to look at the contingencies and the necessities side by side. So in hindsight, look like almost, you know, accidents, things that, you know, were very contingent and might not otherwise have happened, like the changes that Ed Miliband made to the voting for the leadership, mm. which what ultimately allowed Jeremy Corbyn to come into, into power and what kind of allowed us to massively expand our membership over the last several years. But then you've also got what things that seem much more like structural necessity. So the idea that, you know, in the context of this economic and, and social breakdown that's prevailed since 2007, there was always going to be a protest movement, a kind of anti-establishment movement, a socialist movement in the UK, as there has been in, you know, other parts of of Europe. And that given the political context in the UK and given the history of the Labour Party, it made sense that that would coalesce in and around the party. So you've got these kind of, yeah, it's almost, you know, like the perfect storm. Mm. And I think that's maybe why you've seen slightly more progress in the UK than other places where, you know, obviously everywhere kind of political economy differs from place to place and you're going to have different sets of of social forces driving these things. But, you know, broadly speaking, that kind of structural um, crisis 
prevails across the kind of global north at the moment. But there are a number of different historical and contingent factors that ensured, some of which literally kind of, as I said, look like um, almost like accidents, right? Like, you know, Ed Miliband clearly didn't intend to revive socialism in the UK when he changed the laws, the rules around um, around party democracy. You know, some people say that he kind of was doing, you know, there are a whole load of theories as to why he did it, but, you know, there's mm-hmm. no point going into Just it Just spell that out for folks who may not be as uh, familiar with that process. I think I think I talked a little bit about that with Max Shanley. I believe I've mm. talked about that with Leo Panich, so it shouldn't be completely foreign to people. But for those who haven't listened to uh, the entire back catalog of Dead Punnets, and, and shame on you, by the way, if you haven't. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah, let's catch people up. To, uh, let's re- refresh people on that. What 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 sure. was that electoral reform, uh, party reform? Yeah, sure. So I can't exactly remember the specific thing, but essentially what he did was bring in this scheme to allow registered supporters mm-hmm. to vote in leadership elections. Right. And, and again, this is something, it's, it's internal Labour Party democratic structures are, are fairly complicated, but previously there was this assumption that the unions, you know, obviously the basis of the Labour movement in this country and the basis of the Labour Party had a huge amount of power in determining the leadership. And obviously they were integral in allowing Ed Miliband to kind of take the leadership in the first place. Mm-hmm. And kind of for one reason or another, whether it's because he wanted to distance himself from that or for whatever reason, Ed Miliband introduced this scheme where registered supporters, so people who kind of weren't members but could kind of sign up and pay a small fee, would be able to vote in leadership elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is essentially what allowed loads of people to, you know, it was partly that, it was partly the fact that lots of people joined the Labour Party after Ed Miliband's failure to win that election. But the registered support of things was really critical in allowing basically this kind of one, one member, one vote system to really boost the power of the, the membership base of the Labour Party, who are obviously, you know, generally to the left of the electorate. And allow right, right. Jeremy Corbyn to come into power. Um, and a lot of that. It seems to me that the wager was that there was this uh, silent majority inside the party who didn't necessarily go to party meetings. They weren't these hardened militant activists who, as you mentioned, sort of came from the trade union sector. Yeah. And and the, the idea was that the silent majority would sort of moderate the decision making process of the party. It, it backfired, right? Because it opened the gates for a number of, like, say, young, uh, radical, uh, like, millennials. Millennials from yeah. like the momentum wing uh, to, to kind of sweep in and lift Corbyn to power in short. Does that sound about right in terms of how, how it played out? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, a lot of what, and again, this comes back to this debate between like structure and contingency, because a lot of what motivated that kind of groundswell of support for Corbyn was that he was the only anti-austerity candidate. And austerity, I think people, especially Ed Miliband, given his remarks on austerity and most of the actual Labour Party's remarks about austerity, who were vaguely ascribed to the idea that, you know, in one way or another, you did have to pay down the debt in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. They completely underestimated people's real like visceral resistance against what has been one of the most brutal austerity programs outside of the structural adjustment countries as it were like Greece um, and others and that really kind of pushed support it was one of the main I'd been campaigning for the Greens actually in the previous election Mm -hmm. purely because of the, the Labour Party's refusal to actually come out and say austerity is you know absolute nonsense it is a complete and utter contradiction and doesn't make any sense i think that is what motivated a lot of people in that election to come out and just say you know we're voting for this guy because he is mounting a resistance against this kind of really cruel and vindictive economic agenda that harmed our economy and really like eviscerated our society right 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 so there was a real shift there a real qualitative shift that took place when corbyn was elected 
looking to have Alex Nunn's on the show at some point yeah, if I can track him down. He has a really fantastic book called The Candidate that spells out uh, Corbyn's rise to power and how that took place. And again, mm-hmm. this kind of dialectic between contingency and structure and agency and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They sort of came together in this perfect storm, if you will, as you've described. I like that. I like that mm-hmm. characterization quite a bit. So let's skip ahead to the context that we find ourselves in now. I think what's so exciting and invigorating for me about what's going on over Britain right now with respect to this struggle is the kind of intellectual rigor and curiosity that this process has inspired. There are a number of books, edited collections, essays, studies, policy briefs, what have you, that have emerged in the wake of this. It's starting to provide some real meat on the bones, if you will, of this project of uh, of a, a democratic transition to socialism, um, of, of transforming the capitalist state. And you have been a part of one of those collections, uh, like I said, uh, John McDonald, Shadow Chancellor. Mm-hmm. Uh, put together uh, an edited volume called Economics for the Many, yeah, which is a very exciting collection. There's another one I have here on my desk as well. It's called For the Many. It's edited by Mike Phipps, mm-hmm. uh, Preparing Labor for Power. That's kind of more of the topics there, kind of broad sweeping topics about how to radically transform society and in the institutions, democratizing them and so on and so forth, uh, dealing with very specific challenges like the environment and trade and obviously finance, which is your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of other people who have been doing this for a long time. Uh, Hillary yeah. Wainwright of Red Pepper yeah. and many, many others. She goes way back on the labor left, uh, talking very seriously about how to create a new socialist politics from the left to radically transform society and its institutions. So let's talk about your contributions to this kind Mm -hmm. of broad sweeping project, because this is something that just is unparalleled on the U.S. left. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something that the show, uh, it's one of the the main reasons I started the show a year and a half ago, is to try to compel my compatriots here in the United States to start thinking very seriously and concretely about uh, not only the political aspects of socialism, but also some of the technical aspects Mm -hmm. and how the the political aspects and interact with the technical aspects and and back and forth, the dialectic that that, that sort of takes place there. So your territory is this uh, finance, financialization. So let's get into it that way. What is financialization? How did that kick off? opening uh, question. (laughs) Very, very small topic. We can sort of uh, chew this up and spit it out in uh, 30 seconds. Of course. Yeah, let's go. So like the most famous definition of financialization comes from Gerald Epstein, who is um, an academic at UMass who's done quite a lot of work on this. And it's the increasing importance of financial markets, financial motives, financial institutions and financial elites in the operation of the economy. It has different definitions depending on the perspective from which you're looking at it. My view is I'm attempting to kind of bring together insights from post-Keynesian theory, so from theorists such as, you know, Hyman Minsky, uh, together with the kind of more Marxist analysis of what financialization means as a new form of political economy. And from that latter perspective, it's also seen as a kind of new mode of accumulation in which the financial institutions, financial markets, etc., play a very central role in determining kind of production and allocation across the economy to the same extent or to a similar extent as the role that which was once played by unions under the kind of Fordist uh, mode that preceded it. And yeah, we can kind of go into a bit like how that came about and um, how it resulted from the... It was a kind of, you know, fix as uh, that right, emerged right. from the contradictions of the old Fordist model. Right. A certain kind of uh, 
response to a crisis, uh, mm. politically, ideologically informed, I should say, response to a crisis, not the only yeah. one by a long shot. So let's let's start from the beginning, the, the prehistory of financialization, neoliberalism. You mentioned Fordism. Yeah. Spell that out very briefly. It's something that gets tossed around kind of haphazardly oftentimes. Um, I remember when I first entered the left in the academic scene longer ago than I care to admit, uh, I used to hear this term Fordism and I was like, yeah, sure, I know what that is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know what that is, right? But if I was asked to sort of uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, give yeah. a summary, uh, give a 10-second summary, I would have been at a loss, right? It's like, ah, oh, you know, they did the things with the factories and the stuff yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So uh, what is Fordism? What was the regime of accumulation that undergirded it, uh, the, the logic of it and the processes and institutions and the politics and ideology and so forth? Yeah, I mean that, you know, you kind of got it when you talked about, you know, factories and all those sorts of things. It's Also, oh, I nailed of, um, it 10 years ago. Well, kind that was of, all you yeah. Need to say. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. It's this kind of, you know, mode of organizing the economy based around mass production, mass consumption. And this idea of Fordism comes from the methods used by Henry Ford to kind of large mechanized uh, mass production and also the kind of organizational methods that are associated with that, that he kind of pioneered and which is also associated with, you know, partly for, um, well, for a whole host of different reasons, but not least partly because of the kind of collation of workers in these kind of organizational contexts, also associated with the strength of the kind of labor movement the union movement in the global north. And, you know, this is various other terms have been used to describe this particular period. So in the UK, the post-war consensus describes the way in which um, the state was committed to kind of Keynesian methods of demand management in order to maintain full employment, this kind of corporatist relationship between businesses, states and the unions, uh, and how this was used as a kind of mechanism to govern social and economic relations for the kind of, well, 30 years really between the end of the war and the collapse of that model, mm -hmm. which happened in the 1970s. There's been a lot written about, you know, the reasons for that collapse, the kind of the narrative that we're mo probably most lay people would be familiar with is just that that model just didn't work, um, that the unions were too strong and that uh, that was kind of getting in the way of efficient production. But actually, you know, obviously that's the neoliberal interpretation of what happened in the 1970s. And there are a whole host of both kind of structural and contingent factors that led to the collapse of that model. So mm -hmm. on the structural side, we were kind of talking a bit before about the political contradictions of social democracy, which this Marxist academic... Kalecki. I used to say Kalecki, but I've been reliably informed that it's actually pronounced Kalecki, even though it's spelled Kalecki. It is. It is Kalecki. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's I've very said bizarre. that wrong before, so that's embarrassing for me. But there you go. Those crazy poles. Poles. I, I know. <laughs> I believe it's Polish is what what, what throws us off. I mean, yeah. In any case. So what, who, who, who we talked. I've talked about Kalecki a little bit in my mm. finance for for regular ass people series, but I don't expect people to to remember that. Hell, mm. I hardly remember what we talked about with Kalecki. So who yeah. was he, and uh, what did he reveal about these contradictions of? Yeah of uh, full employment contradictions of social democracy as you laid it out. So I like to think of Kalecki as like the cool version of Keynes because uh, he basically <laughs> came up with the same Yeah, he's Keynes theory. in a tracksuit, right? Yeah, right. He came yeah. up with exactly the same kind of theory um, as the kind of traditional Keynesian model that we're familiar with at the same time as Keynes, as these things often uh, do. But he was also much more political than Keynes. There's this really great book by Jeff Mann that kind of looks at, at Keynesianism as an ideology and compares it to Hegelianism, basically, and says mm -hmm. that Keynes is primarily concerned with the maintenance of, of kind of civilization um, distinguished from barbarism. Um, and he kind of 
believes that the best way to do this is to help overcome some of the inherent contradictions of capitalism in order to maintain basically civilized society. So there's this kind of elision between, you know, society and, and capitalist economy. And this is kind of a big part of what Keynes's Keynesianism is about. It's about kind of, you know, reducing or overcoming the um, contradictions that Marx identifies in, in capitalist political economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Kalecki does a similar sort of thing. He, he looks at these sorts of issues around demand. You know, Keynes and Kalecki are both coming up against the traditional classical economics, which is, is centered around this idea called Say's Law, which is, is basically can be very um, superficially summarized as supply creates its own demand. So demand is never mm-hmm. really a problem. As long as there's stuff being produced, it, you know, the price mechanism will ensure that it gets allocated efficiently. And Keynes and Kalecki both bring in this idea of, of demand and, and the business cycle and how that becomes important in determining the business cycle, basically. Right, right. Yeah, so Kalecki, but also Kalecki is more is more political in the sense that even as he starts writing these things, he also brings out some of the inherent contradictions of the model that Keynes tried to pursue, which is, of course, what people on the British left, many people on the British left always thought about Keynesianism, which is, yes, you know, it has increased and improved the living standards of workers in the global north, and that's a very important point. But that in many ways, it was kind of ameliorative for um, for capitalism. It, it was never really seeking to go beyond, which, of course, it wasn't. And for that reason, like any mode of accumulation that is capitalist, that's fundamentally capitalist, it had its own contradictions. And those contradictions Kalecki lays out in The Political Consequences of Social Democracy, which are essentially that when you have a state committed to maintaining full employment... Labour becomes too powerful relative to capital is kind of a broad way of of describing this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, in me- this is why it's the political consequence of social democracy. It's not necessarily the social democratic mode of accumulation is economically unsustainable. It's that it's politically untenable, that bosses prefer to exist in the much more kind of um, dog-eat-dog world of, of free market, um, laissez-faire, obviously supported by a state which, you know, is committed to bolstering their power at the expense of labour, even if a kind of social democratic model in which full employment is maintained and therefore consumption is guaranteed and therefore profitability might be higher, that even if, you know, that system is associated with higher profits for some capitalists, they will resist it because um, it is associated with a kind of erosion of their power relative to the power of labor. Right, right. There are a number of explanations here that, I mean, it just uh, the debates are sort of swimming and swirling in my head. Uh, one of the ways that people have looked at this has been um, the kind of... Um Oh, wage squeeze, uh, the way in which the trade unions became too powerful um, mm. and uh, produced a certain kind of contradiction that uh, as Leo Panich has described on the show, Mike Beggs has described on the show in terms of at that point in the 1970s, we were going to need to go beyond capitalism, mm. um, which was going to to require an enormous political effort. Uh, and mm. we just at, at the end of the day, uh, there, there, there wasn't the sort of uh, agencies uh, and structures in place to pull that off. And uh, so they were ultimately squashed by neoliberalism. Mm. Uh, but we're really in the weeds now. This is great. Um, <laughs> everybody, the DPS uh, faithful out there, take a drink. I said in the weeds. Where should we go next? So where does financialization enter? Yeah, the so let's get on to that. But first, I wanted to come back on this point that this idea 
that, you know, the, the fundamental contradiction of social democracy was because, you know, there is this Kaleckian idea, Kaleckian idea that there are these inherent contradictions in the social democratic model. And this is undoubtedly true. But I don't think it's sufficient to reduce what happened in the 1970s, particularly in the UK context, to there being, you know, this issue of a profit squeeze, right? Yeah, right, right. A profit squeeze that resulted from Labour unions being too powerful. Uh, because, you know, what you have to look at what was going on then in the context of the massive structural changes that were then underway in the global economy. And also some kind of, again, contingent factors that escalated some of those contradictions and, and made them worse. So the contingent factors, and again, there's an, an argument about the extent to which anything is ever contingent, but you know, you can look at that to an extent in an isolated sense, were the oil crises, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which dramatically increased inflation. Right, and right. this basically led to the breakdown of the central tenet of Keynesian demand management, which was that there's this relationship between unemployment and inflation. Mm-hmm. And that centered on this idea of demand pull inflation so inflation driven by right. um, mainly wage bargaining right, right. whereas what happened in the 1970s with this massive increase in inflation which uh, didn't primarily result from demand but from uh, cost pressures associated with this massive increase in the price of oil which obviously affects production across the spectrum and this escalates those distributional tensions that already existed mm-hmm. between labor and capital Essentially, because when you have high inflation, capitalists would usually try and offset the impact of that in terms of rising costs by keeping wages constant, by you know not increasing wages. But when you have powerful unions, they will push for wage increases that are in line with inflation. Right, and right. so you get this massive, you know, the, the tensions that were kind of latent in that system are pushed centre stage um, into the front and centre of economic life in the UK, really. And this the period in the 1970s is, you know, the UK becomes what we're known as the sick man of Europe, because we've got lots of strike action, really kind of a lot of conflict between capital and labour and with the government not really sure often which side to take. And then again, you know, you also have to. It brought have, down. It brought down so, uh, multiple governments, if I'm not yes. mistaken. As yeah, well. yeah, like yeah. British history yeah. there is not so good. So this is what I poorly uh, sort of alluded to uh, just a moment ago, as you you spelled out in much better detail, uh, is uh, Glenn and Sutcliffe's uh, profit squeeze uh, thesis, yeah. which is. Uh, Oh boy, you want to piss off a Marxist? <laughs> I was going to say because uh, I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I think we should probably talk about theory, this a little bit. Please. I mean, we are deep, deep, deep in the weeds, people. I so know, if, if, we if we're losing you, or if we're talking over <laughs> your heads, have no fear. You know, I remember like uh, the old stodgy Marxists used to gripe and complain about this, like after political meetings and stuff over beers yeah. and whatnot. And I was completely lost. But we're going to spell this out. So for the good Marxists out there who are screaming at their at their smartphones or wherever they happen to be listening <laughs> to this, like you know, what about the fucking falling rate of profit you assholes so let's let's talk a little bit about the the notion of crisis and the way in which you see the, the way that you seem to prefer to sort of talk about it and spell it out and and i yeah. myself as well versus more kind of like uh marxian structuralist uh conceptions of crisis which is kind of sure because like i think this is really crucial in terms of how we characterize financialization and the rise of neoliberalism. And mm. just to make this as digestible as possible, uh, we're, we're both very happy and willing disciples of Leo Panich. Uh, of course. Yeah, he says jump, we say how high. Uh, he <laughs> says drink the Kool-Aid, we say uh, yes. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> yes, Leo. How much? Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, um, God, so, okay, crisis. The way he yeah. characterizes uh, this, and I think, along with many others, I would say, is that neoliberalism kicked off a new regime of accumulation. 
Yeah. Whereas many in the Marxist crowd, uh, the monthly review uh, group, um, people around, say, John Bellamy Foster and and others, uh, sort of, and and, and, and a lot of the people sort of uh, clustered on the Marxist left in the UK in particular, sort of see neoliberalism as this long kind of uh, Mm. plotting stagnation period where there's this kind of crisis and the falling rate of profit was sort of exerting itself and we had these bubbles that didn't really amount to much. Mm. They were just kind of froth, uh, you know, yeah. on the top of this stagnation soup, if you will. Uh, yeah. enough, enough of the metaphors. Put some uh, <laughs> put some concreteness onto that for us. So the first thing I would say is actually, I'm sure that all your listeners are incredibly well informed, but like the crisis theory in Marxism and in more recent discussions in the Marxist tradition is incredibly complicated. And when, like years ago, when I was trying to get my head around this, the most helpful thing that I have found, and I actually know the guy who, who wrote a lot of this, is the Wikipedia page on crisis theory. Seriously, it's really, it's really useful. And it kind of will, it puts a lot of these things in context in terms of who are the monthly review people? What is the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? All these sorts of things. So if you're completely lost, just go there and it will, it'll help. Wow. And this is going to get me in trouble with lots of Marxists who would say that you can't conceivably understand crisis without having read all three volumes of Capital. But uh, again, <laughs> that's that's not my jam. I have too many things to read. I guess I want to sort of get into this by way of transitioning into neoliberalism as a kind of new and unique uh, regime of accumulation. So let's jump in head first, but with an eye towards uh, sort of setting the stage for neoliberalism mm. and financialization yeah, as this kind cool. of new uh, regime of accumulation. Because ultimately, the end of this discussion, we're going to give everyone the final credible answer on how to democratize uh, finance and achieve yeah. uh, full luxury space communism for all. Of course. Got to stay focused on the, on the main goal here. <laughs> so back to, you know, massive basics, the difference between... Marxist political economy and almost every other form of political economy or every other kind of economic ideology is this idea that capitalism inevitably tends towards crisis and those that crisis those crises are endogenous um so they are integral to the way that the system works Marx laid out again this idea that the problem with capitalism is that there is a tendency of the rate of profit to fall which relates to his views about where value comes from and um, you know which is effectively the addition of labor to the production process and the fact that as time goes on you have a declining organic composition of capital so there's less labor used in the production process which inevitably leads to a tendency of the rate of profit to fall which is the critical thing it's the rate of profit not necessarily profits themselves right well don't forget about the blood and the sweat and the sacrifice of the capitalists though of right? course that's also very important the way Risk. they squeeze entrepreneurs their and um <laughs> they work so hard the sweat yeah. of their, the sweat of their brow uh, <laughs> produces uh value in our society their brows totally. actually do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, as I was talking about earlier, the kind of Keynesian and Kletzkian thought was very much informed by attempting to kind of paper over these crises. And, and that would be done by demand management via the state, which mm-hmm. would ensure that at least kick down the road some of these uh, inherent contradictions that started to really grip the capitalist system in the kind of the 30s um, when you start to have the kind of Wall Street cash and stuff. Right. So so let's let's get into that because there's one sort of thing. I know. So we're going to speed past it. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, you Come on, folks. You knew what this was. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think there's this, this the key the key theme here that I want to sort of disabuse people of the way that they use this in a wrong-headed way is one of John Maynard Keynes's sort of key sayings, phrases or whatever what have you is in the long run, we're all dead. Mm. Cause I think this is really key to his 
intervention into mm. crisis and managing crisis in terms of how it was actually like an improvement uh, on the uh, sort of neoclassical uh, way mm. of handling the, the alleged uh, sort of uh, propensity of markets to find an equilibrium. Mm. So where does that where does that kind of uh, catchphrase come from and how does that fit into the way that Keynesians have been managing crises uh, ever since? Yeah, so I think you can interpret this in two different ways. Firstly, you can interpret in the long run we're all dead in terms of Keynes's debates with, neo, with, well, not neoclassical economists, then classical economists, mm-hmm. which centered around this idea of Say's law. So supply creates its own demand and that over the long run, prices adjust to ensure that the market clears, that, you know, everyone's employed, that all the goods that are being produced are being consumed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Keynes's insight into this kind of slightly bizarre theory was that even if that did happen over the long run, over the short term, it doesn't. And because of, you know, because we're not these like amazing robots that can kind of undertake economic activity in the absence of any kind of fear or psychological tendencies, that doesn't happen over the short term. For various reasons, people decide en masse that, you know, the economy's not doing so well. So rather than spending, they save. Businesses decide that they're reaching the peak of the business cycle. So they stop investing, which again, constrains demand. And all of these things mean that you can get, well, you do get changes in the business cycle um, that are driven by insufficient demand. So the fact that there's lots right. of stuff, but there's not not enough people kind of consuming the stuff. Also funny how humans uh, don't do well after not eating after like, you know, four or five days. Like exactly. We, 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 yeah. we die, you know, things yeah. like, you know, our bodies shut down and whatnot. So there are physical limits to to crisis as well that exert exactly. themselves politically. Yeah. And this is this whole thing about the price mechanism being this perfect way of allocating resources. Because ultimately, you know, neoclassical economic theory suggests that wages should also be determined by the price mechanism. So if you have too many people, then all of them will eventually end up being employed because wages will fall until everyone is being used in the best way. But of course, if wages fall below a certain level, then everyone dies. So, you know, there are these weird <laughs> kind of uh, utopian and just completely reality devoid assumptions at the heart of a lot of neoclassical economists would now come back and say, no, we've dealt with all this stuff and this isn't a problem anymore. But again, this is the fundamental assumption that Keynes was challenging, was that in the long run, everything works itself out. Because, you know, even if theoretically it might, factually it doesn't. And I think, but there's another sense in which the kind of in the long run, it's all dead quote can be taken. And I think Jeff Mann does this well in his book on the subject, which is that the crises of capitalism may not really ever be perfectly solvable, but that we can come up with ways to ameliorate them. And Mm -hmm. so whilst in the long run, capitalism may die, there is a terrain, a time horizon over which we'll be able to kind of maintain the system and make it work well enough to ensure that people survive and actually do so according to a fairly good standard of living. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, you know, Keynes is talking to two very different camps. On the one hand, the kind of classical economists, and on the other hand, the other kind of Marxists when he, when he brings out this phrase. Wow. This is, I mean, this is all really, really great. So let's, let's fast forward into neoliberalism and financialization because ultimately what we want to do. That is where we want to be. Is we want to, we want to address finance 
um, what to do about it. And yeah. because that's going to be one of the real kind of stumbling blocks mm. of any socialist project for sure. It was in the 1970s. Um, and, and, you know, we got our asses kicked in the 1980s, you might say, to <laughs> yeah. put it lightly, uh, in, in, in many senses because of the way that finance had sort of broken free of the constraints of the post-war settlement and was bursting at the seams and overpowering, I think, that particular regulatory and political regime's um, imaginative capacities. And in a sense, I think like where, correct me if I'm uh, um, speaking out of turn here or what have you, but uh, I think that's where you and I and, and, and the likes of uh, Panitch and others would disagree with the Marxian crisis theorists in terms of to say like, actually, if uh, it, it was capital that was revolutionary in the 1980s. Mm. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's why, you know, that's why we lost. Uh, yeah. They had the revolutionary uh, spirit. They, they, it was, mm. they, they were the innovative uh, sort of revolutionary force in society and they mm. transformed the state and institutions in their own image. Uh, they mm. did, as Marx said yeah. in the manifesto, they recreated the world in, in their own image uh, in a very profound sort of way. And it's that legacy that we're, that we're left with. Yeah, I think, again, this comes back to, um, and this is, you know, constantly what, what ends up coming back to is this dialectic between structure and agency. And it really depends on who you're talking to, because there are a lot of people that obviously interpret Marx and Marxism as uh, very deterministic and all about structure and structural crisis and contradictions. But there are, you know, a, many Marxists who would say that's that's ridiculous and that Marx understood this dialectic in- incredibly well. And you can see this coming out in what happens in the 1970s and 80s, because on the one hand, as we've discussed, there were these contradictions associated with social democracy. But there was also a huge amount of contingency and, as we were saying, you know, revolutionary zeal on the part of capital at this point that ensured that that battle was won comprehensively by capital and by a particular subsection of capital. And there are a couple of different ways of looking at it. So we've discussed in detail the kind of structural contradictions, so I won't go into that in too much detail. But what we haven't done is contextualise that in a global context. So another thing that was happening was that uh, in the in the aftermath of the, the First World War, to a greater or lesser extent, finance capital, uh, so these big pools of, uh, of money that kind of float around the world, have been put in its box by the creation of this, the Bretton Woods system, which, I mean, again, Leo talks about this a lot in his book about how Bretton Woods was actually a really big part of maintaining American dominance and um, within that, the dominance of American finance. But broadly speaking, mm-hmm. capital was in its box to a greater extent than it had been in the past during this period. Right. Capital, uh, many restraints on um, on capital mobility. But almost immediately as, as those were put in place, capital started to undermine them. So you had the emergence of the euro dollar markets, which are these kind of offshore markets in dollars and other currencies that mainly exist in in the city of London. And you have the kind of emergence of these massive multinational corporations that are able to move capital very quickly around the world. So at the same time as you have these structural contradictions emerging in social democracy, you have finance capital and, well, all forms of capital really eroding that commitment that Keynes and Harry Dexter White and others embedded in the, in the set of post-war international financial institutions, which was to limit capital mobility. And this is the really central underlying tendency that happens on the global level is the slow erosion of, of that model. Eventually getting to the point where, um, obviously the gold standard collapses. And, you know, oh God, I don't, I'm not going to go down that tangent, but the gold standard collapses. <laughs> People are getting their money's worth today. I gotta say that. I mean, Read the no book. It's all going to be in that. there. 
<laughs> and this kind of accelerates a process of capital getting out of this box, out of Pandora's box. You suddenly mm-hmm. get massive increases in, in capital flows. Uh, and this is accelerated when you get the removal of all the legal restrictions on capital mobility that did exist, which happens in the UK in 1979, and I think earlier in the US, and then is pushed on all different countries in the global economy by um, the international financial institutions over the course of the 1980s. So you have capital unleashed on the one hand, you have social democracy in crisis on the other hand, and then you have, as, as we said, the kind of revolutionary zeal of capital manifested in you know the famous Mont Pelerin society. Uh, so capitalists coming together and deciding... Social democracy is in crisis. We, it's actually before this, but you know, social democracy doesn't work for us. We need to build, um, consciously use this moment of crisis to build a new world order. And that is what you start seeing coming out in, in the seventies with the birth in the UK. You have the emergence of all these neoliberal think tanks that start pushing these ideas around markets need to be free. The state needs to be back in its box. The unions are too powerful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually, you know, partly because of the existing rebalancing of power, both globally and nationally, away from capital and towards labour, and partly because of the kind of concerted effort um, on the part of these people to change the way the system works, you then get politicians like Thatcher and Reagan coming to power and properly institutionalising this new agenda that benefits in the UK. I mean, it is designed to benefit financial capital, essentially. Uh, so these, again, these big pools of capital that uh, really start to emerge after the, after the big bang, after the removal of restrictions on capital mobility and which come to, to influence and shape all other forms of economic activity that take place throughout that period. Right on, right on. So we've, we've got a nice uh, sweeping history of capitalism and finance and social democracy up into the 1970s and 80s. Let's talk a little bit Emphasis about- Emphasis on the sweeping. I'm sorry if I've missed things out or offended no, not, anyone. Not at all. Not, I mean, again, people are getting their, their money's worth. There's no question. Uh, there, there's a lot here. And I, again, I mean, I think that uh, if your head is spinning- and we've lost you almost completely. Although I say, give yourself some credit. I think you're, every, everybody here is probably following along uh, much yeah. much better than they think they are. Even if we're throwing out names and little you know pieces of jargon that you don't quite totally comprehend. I think give yourself some credit. You understand the broad sweep of things and the, and the direction that uh, things are headed. Because well, you're living it for one. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're living it. So it's, uh, uh, we, we've all sort of uh, survived the school of hard knocks up to present. Um, which is why you're all good socialists. So let's talk <laughs> about the transition to financialization because cool. I think that Theresa May is sort of infamously now, not only did she, well, I was going to say infamously, above all, she sort of uh, danced her way on stage. Uh, oh, God, yeah. Uh, which was hard to watch, but uh, a little less infamously so per, in, in comparison, uh, she proclaimed that austerity is over, although oh, yeah. maybe not yet. Maybe like next year, uh, if you really read between the lines, austerity mm. will be over. Maybe next year. Maybe maybe eventually we won't uh, be be uh, you know slaughtering people with our uh, economic and social policies. But I think I think one thing is sure. Uh, one 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 thing that is certain is that if uh, if and when a Labour government comes to power in, the, in 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 Britain, that they will immediately and quite swiftly implement policies uh, that will overturn the kind of austerian ethos mm. that has informed much of the the policies uh, over the past uh, 10 or 20 years. Yeah. But with that being said, you know, the way that I try to conceptualize and I'm working on this, this is kind of a work in progress. It's something that I'm th- trying to think through in terms of the show and my own uh, you know, academic political work 
is to think about how neoliberalism is not just an ideology, right? I mean, people mm. talk about neoliberalism as purely ideological, mm. um, as emerging from the likes of uh, Hayek and Free, uh, Friedman in various ways and, and so mm. on. Um, but I like to look at neoliberalism in terms of a set of structural contradictions, as it seems that you do as well, mm. um, coming from the similar uh, lineages and heritages there. What does it mean for austerity to be over? Is it just a matter of – trick question here, right? Is it just a matter of implementing inflationary policies once more? Or is it a matter of overcoming the kind of structurally contradictory uh, set of imperatives and, and, and all the rest of it, right? Because it seems yeah. to me that the deck – to put it lightly, the deck is stacked against us in the realm yeah. of international finance and, and trade and and uh, even just sub social and public policy. You get into this in your chapter and your contribution to the, the, the Economics for the Many book mm. um, as well in terms of how to level the playing field between, say, London and the surrounding regions yeah. of the UK. And that's just one way to enter the question uh, more concretely. So, mm. uh, yeah, have a go at that one. We'll wrap up the show with a wide-ranging discussion, I'm sure, in this vein. So the, the first thing that you, you point out is this question about neoliberalism. Is it an ideology or is it a form of political economy that is based on a particular set of structures? Um, and the way I like to think of it is that neoliberalism is an ideology and it is associated with, as you were saying, a particular mode of accumulation based on a particular set of power relations associated with financialization. So mm -hmm. I think of neoliberalism, like in a massively, you know, simplified sense, I like to think of neoliberalism as the ideology and finance driven accumulation as the kind of structure. In the same way that, you know, you could think of Keynesianism as the ideology and Fordism as the structure that, that preceded it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, is it doesn't really make sense to think of either of those things separate from one another because, right, right. you know, they, they, they co-constitute each other. And yeah, again, this question of what it means now in the context of extended crisis to be able to move beyond austerity is a question of whether or not we can once again paper over the contradictions of this model or whether we need to move beyond to something completely new and different. And my thinking on this is informed, um, we're going to move a little bit away from Marx now and a little bit more onto kind of post-Keynesian uh, economics. My thinking about this is informed by the work of uh, economists like uh, Hyman Minsky. So a lot of what happened in the kind of boom period, what was called the great moderation between the 1980s and 2007, was massive increases in debt and in asset prices. Uh, and you can look at this on a number of different fronts. Firstly, you can look at the way in which the kind of deregulation of the financial system combined with the increasing mobility of capital allowed for, on the one hand, the emergence of kind of big imbalances on the in the global economy between debtor countries and creditor countries. And on the other hand, capital flowing into those debtor countries and being converted into debt for consumers. That debt was primarily directed towards purchasing housing. And when you have that broad expansion in the money supply directed towards a particular asset, you get inflation. And so UK house prices, I'm going to focus on the UK if that's okay, because that's what I know best. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so UK house prices increased 10 times between 1979 and 2007. And that in turn creates a wealth effect. It makes people feel wealthier because their houses are increasing in value. They're able to leverage that increased value to take out more debt. 
So they're able to take out credit card debt. They're able to release the equity from their homes. They're able to use that to finance second homes or third homes or or any of these different things. Um, and right. so you start to see this really dramatic increase in in household debt. Accompanied by that, you also start to see a decline in, well, an opening up, uh, a gap emerging between productivity, so the amount workers produce per hour and the amount their their wages are increasing. So neoclassical economic theory suggests that these two things should increase in tandem, but that stops when the unions are destroyed and when you start to get the financialization of firms. So firms start thinking, workers don't really matter, we're going to use all our spare cash to distribute that to shareholders and alongside that, a way that I describe in the book that's quite complicated, you also get the emergence of big monopolies that are also able to kind of put shareholders and basically the interests of capital above those of workers. And so you, again, start to see this kind of massive increase in inequality and slowing of, of wage, well, increase in the capital share relative to the labour share of national income, which is disguised again by this asset price inflation with regards to people's houses and also their pensions. And we talked about this with pension fund capitalism. So you have the privatisation of people's pensions, all that money directed into financial markets, boosting uh, asset prices and creating again the self-reinforcing cycle in this wealth effect. And so by extending the benefits of homeownership and private pension funds in the context of asset price inflation to a swathe of the middle classes, a big swathe of the middle classes, Thatcher is able to create a new form of political economy, um, which sustains itself all the way up to 2007, but which, of course, ultimately collapses because debt fueled asset price inflation is inherently unsustainable. And it went on for a very, very long time because of the kind of intricate things that happened in the international financial system. On the one hand, because of all the capital that was flowing into the global north. On the other hand, because banks were able to securitize the mortgages they were creating and use the cash they got from that to create new mortgages. And this is what kind of underlies this idea that we had this great moderation of, you know, no real crises, uh, no really big crises that affected the real economy too much over the course of this period. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was all based on ever increasing levels of debt, ever increasing asset prices, rising inequality and a kind of general degradation of the kind of position of workers in the economy. And yeah, this collapses in 2007, but we haven't moved on. So you can see things like quantitative easing, um, like uh, combined with austerity as a way of attempting to maintain this combination of asset price inflation with, you know, keeping workers in their place with kind of not, not committing to any kind of Keynesian agenda around employment that would start to rebalance power away from capital towards labor, especially in the context of the crisis, which provided a, a momentary lapse for some powerful actors because of, you know, this massive wipeout of, of wealth that took place in the aftermath of 2007. So what we're seeing now is the, the attempt to kind of paper over the contradictions of the old system, but in ways that are fundamentally unsustainable. You know, there is no going back to that model that preceded 2007 because you simply unless you write off all the debt that's been created you can't sustain continued increases in um, debt that you saw in that period you know debt rose from 80 percent of household disposable incomes to 150 percent in 2000 between uh, 1979 and 2007 so yeah we're living in as i said at the very beginning you know the scramshian moment of the collapse of the old without the emergence of something new which is a moment that creates a huge amount of potential it creates a huge amount of space for agency but that can be said for both capital and labor 
Right. I think that people feel that kind of tension very palpably. And I think mm. that's what's leading to the, the crisis and confidence of, of the system, the capitalist mm. system, which is that like, even if you haven't read your Marx, even if you particularly, you know, probably most people haven't read their Minsky, uh, people yeah. feel very tangibly and palpably this, 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 they get the sense that like, look, like I can't work harder. I can't work yeah. anymore. Mm. I can't take on more debt. I'm already paying interest out, out, you know, out the eyeballs. Uh, yeah. and, and everyone I know it has has it just like me or worse. Yeah, and this can't continue, right? I mean, we just can't keep squeezing people in this way. Like, I mean, uh, I've had a lot of people in my life, family members and otherwise, who are you know not really political or, or don't really care about this, who just have have expressed these kind of sentiments to me. Like, this is madness. Mm. This madness just can't continue uh, ratcheting up, like you know, into infinity. I mean, something's got to give, right? Um, and I think you've you've spelled that out really well. For though, you know, we've 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 uh, trotted out a lot of uh, difficult histories and concepts. Uh, you write about this. Um, in a nice little uh, short but dense essay. People should check yeah, it out. Yeah, the Jacobin. Yeah, um, that was, yeah, it's, it's called, a, a good uh, summer It's called Market Meltdown. Um, that piece was, uh, that's your red pepper piece, yeah? Oh, sorry. Yeah, there's a red pepper piece um, called Market Meltdown. Yes. And there is another slightly longer piece in Jacobin. Uh, it's about 5,000 words called mm-hmm. The Latest Incarnation of Capitalism. And both of those lay out these arguments in a little bit more depth. Right, right. So I'll have both of those uh, articles in the show notes if people want to check that out. Uh, but I think the real key here, the real, uh, the kind of, the rifts, the dividing lines, political and otherwise, are, are laid forth in this era uh, where finance sort of sinks its talons into certain segments of the population. And you describe in your Red Pepper piece this uh, process as producing a class of many capitalists who benefit yeah. from their involvement with the financial system. Uh, also, you know, not only just just homeowners who who see their wealth increase exponentially. This is the kind of uh, the stereotypical and and not entirely deserved, but also kind of deserved, uh, kind of reactionary uh, baby boomer, baby boom generation, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that we have all suffered uh, here in the United States in the wake of Trump, uh, at least demographically, statistically speaking, those are, those are the kind of um, the classic Trump voters, um, these kind of mini capitalists who now own, uh, you know, land and are renting, uh, they're now slumlords to, to the millennials and the, the Generation Z mm. types out there. And, and a lot of those types of people comprise the kind of social base for an emergent uh, like proto-fascism, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, I think the people who, who end up voting uh, for these far-right parties aren't just, you know, these unwashed skinheads, you know. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're these uh, petty bourgeois, respectable, upper-middle-class types of people who sort of see the threats to their – um, you know, tenuous, uh, you know, well-being or whatever, and xenophobic, yeah. and they're pr- prone to all sorts of racism and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, you know, make a pitch for people. Like, why should people, like socialists above all, <laughs> study finance? Okay, good like, question. Why, why, why is finance important? Um, and, and what kind of answers, uh, can it provide us? Why, you know, shouldn't we be out there on the picket lines, you know, getting our hands dirty, like fetishizing, you know, notions of, of productive, the productive sector. And, uh, shouldn't we just send all the, f- the, f- the financiers to the gulags? When we take power? <laughs> Good questions. Um, so I think the reason that people should be concerned with finance and finance capital broadly, rather than just kind of some narrow interpretation of the banks, is that 
the finance sector plays a central role in determining the allocation of resources in the context and production of resources in the context of a finance a finance led growth regime. So you can't have increases in consumer debt. You can't have you know massive mortgage lending. You can't have you know the rise of institutional investors and shareholder value if you don't have not only big banks. But actually, more importantly, big institutional investors, so huge hedge funds, pension funds, giant pools of capital that kind of sprawl over the globe, directing where and how and what will be what will be produced. And that is a really critical thing to understand financialization, not just in terms of all the things I've just been talking about, the kind of economic underpinnings of that, but crucially, and this is why I think it's important for socialists to understand the political and the power dynamics of this. And as I was, uh, this is the kind of thing that I brought up when I was on that panel with Ed Miliband, is that when Thatcher was attempting to use the space created by the collapse of that old model to bring in this new one, the first thing she did, aside from unleashing the power of capital, was uh, really repressing the power of labour. So the unions had played this kind of central role in, in the production of allocation of resources under Fordism and had become relatively powerful as a result and as partly as a result of their alliance with the state. And Thatcher just literally came in and said, no, this is not happening anymore. We are going to crush beyond recognition the labour movement in this country because they are the ones that will get in the way of the kind of unleashing of the power of capital. They are the last bastion of resistance um, that will prevent us from kind of realising this model. And I think that we need to think about finance capital in that same way, mm-hmm. that they will stop at nothing to prevent a massive rebalancing of wealth and power away from la- uh, from capital and towards labour. They will use every resource at their disposal, and there are a lot of resources at their disposal, uh, to make any socialist project unviable. And so we have to really look at this in kind of... In, t- in the same way that Thatcher looked at it as a battle, as a war, um, and think about, you know, the structural weaknesses of these institutions, these actors, and how we can basically accomplish the almost impossible task of putting capital back in its box um, as a single government. And, you know, the reason I think that there is more potential in the UK than anywhere else is because we have this massively over um, enlarged finance sector that plays a role in the global economy, um, a, a central node in the international financial system. And if we're really able to kind of bring the city to heel, no small task. I mean, that is, you know, probably one of the most challenging tasks any Labour government will face. Then we will help to not only reshape and rebalance power in our own country, but also in the global economy more more broadly. Right. There's a lot to say there about how, uh, you know, I think the in particularly in in your context uh, the city of london being the kind of center being like the kind of wall street uh the the corollary there yeah. um is is taken on an even much more outsized uh power sort of uh in terms of political economic social power base yeah. that they've established for themselves there since the 1970s and 80s becoming a relatively minor player um on the financial market to just becoming a juggernaut that attracts capital uh, and then of course that sets off and I, I kind of hope to get into this we'll have to bring you back on the show sometime <laughs> in the future I'd love to, to this talk, would be really fun <laughs> to talk to talk about what we what we originally set out to talk about which are the kind of constraints uh brought about in the domestic context when you have an international uh hub of finance inside of your own borders 
yeah. right? Because I think the contradictions that that you're going to face, uh, in, you know, that the labor government will face once they get in power, are very similar to the hurdles and barriers of socialism in the United States, which is mm. to say that when you have international finance inside of your own borders, it constrains your domestic economy uh, in, in very profound ways. Uh, yeah. Leo Panitch and Sam Gendon famously explained this in there, The Making of Global Capitalism, which we've uh, referred to many, many times. And if people haven't <laughs> read that, just turn this off. Just stop listening oh, to us. So we don't good. have anything interesting to say compared <laughs> to that. Just pick, the, pick up the book and read it right away. They talk about how first, right, like before finance can really uh, take off, it requires an enormous amount of capacities, which require the government, the state will inevitably have to discipline labor inside of, you know, in the mm. domestic context first, which yeah. is what kind of compelled neoliberal policies in the United States uh, prior to like actual formal neoliberalism. Yeah. Like in the 1960s yeah. and 70s, you see uh, the disciplining of labor that was a kind of prerequisite to the United States uh, sort of opening itself up to the pressures of international finance. Yeah. I'm really just kind of alluding to a lot of things that require a lot of unpacking here. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, you're exceptionally bright. Spell this out for our audience Thank as you. we close. <laughs> you can do – you got this. I, I have faith uh, in Okay. You. I will what, give it a what go. What are some of the primary hurdles of being an international finance uh, hub of finance mm. in terms of trying to manage one's domestic affairs? Yeah. And I, I think the way I think about this is that it makes the battle harder, but the prize is so much bigger. Um, uh, because like that. that's good. yeah, yeah. On the one hand, you know, we have the state has deliberately and explicitly created a model of political economy that relies hugely on the capital inflows that the finance sector sucks in, and the kind of tax revenues that that generates for the UK, as well as the kind of debt that 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 has um, has generated for consumers. So, moving away from that model could potentially spell. A lot of, of, and you're seeing this at the moment with um, all these articles coming out about how rich people are moving their money out of the UK, not because of Brexit, but because of Corbyn, because these people know that the, the secret to their wealth and power is their ability to move their money unconstrained uh, to all corners of the globe. Um, and uh, any socialist project, the centre of that has to be doing effectively almost the impossible and putting capital back in its box. I'm talking to a lot of people at the moment about this, about how a Labour government could reintroduce capital controls, controls on capital mobility, alongside rebalancing the the economy nationally um, and and geographically through mm -hmm. things like an industrial strategy, through kind of you know through nationalisations, through uh, chain, you know uh, public finance, all those sorts of things. And I think that the biggest challenge that we'll face is that. They know what's going on and they have a lot of power and they'll see this coming. And before we can get to the point of thinking about doing capital controls, they will have moved a shitload of their money out. Now, of mm. course, on the other hand, that spells trouble for the current administration, for the Conservatives. Sure, it, sure. You know, it creates a lot of economic issues there. But on the other hand, you know, when we come to power, we will have to see this as it, there is every chance that we will come into the power in the context of a similar winter of discontent that Thatcher faced. And remember what Thatcher did. She made things a lot, lot worse before they got better. You know, she really set out to kind of absolutely destroy labor in this country. And she had the power of, of capital to allow her to do that. We can't really think of things in the same way. We can't really hope to kind of ferment a massive crisis. We have to think this crisis is coming because capital will withdraw its support for any socialist government. And we have to think of ways to both 
take on their power to really, you know, fight them and, and take them, take them on. And also to start immediately building underlying foundations of the, what the new socialist economy would look like. And, and those mm-hmm. interventions, basically, every intervention in the first time of the Labour government has to have in mind both reducing the power of finance and making people better off and, and boosting the economy. And for me, you know, what the, some of those most central things are obviously, yes, capital controls. So I would say qualitative capital controls, taxes on currency, mm-hmm. but also a debt write-off. This is one of the most powerful things an incoming Labour government could do. You would cut to the core of the bank's revenue generation model, whilst also providing a massive boost to some of the poorest people in society, which would then also boost growth over the long run. And so, yeah, all these things I'm kind of think about how these fit together in the last couple of chapters of my book. So when I've written that, then I will come back and hopefully spell that out in more detail if it is possible. I may just come to the conclusion that it isn't. Uh, We just need some answers. Come on, Grace, just give us the answers. That's why why you're here. You just got to give us the answers. Uh, We need help. Um, Okay, I'm I'm doing my best, Adam. (laughs) uh, Give us the, we need the cheat codes to how to to beat this game called capitalism. Um, It's like left, right, A, B, A, B, select, start. Um, I tried that. It didn't work. That sounds right. I mean, it's like, what's the meaning of life? 42. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's one, kind of the metaphor you keep using, and I'm going to offer something here. It's really intense. Yeah. And I don't know if the audience is well read enough or cultured enough, I should say, <laughs> uh, because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite cultured and uh, my, my taste in film is probably over the head of many, but there's this foreign probably film. Probably over my head, but there's okay, this foreign film. It's really um, sophisticated. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called uh, Shrek. Okay, go. Yeah, you ever seen this? Yeah. You ever heard of this? I, Shrek? I, absolutely. I love I mean, you know, as you said, very niche, but it's, I have actually seen it. Shrek oh, probably. okay. So you're among the few yeah. who've seen this yeah. uh, Shrek movie. Perhaps some of my audience have seen it as well. So you keep using this sort of uh, metaphor, this this uh, vision, I, and I like it in a sense. I like it, uh, but maybe I can offer something that you can use in your book and, and cool. feel free to, to cite. You know, I think Shrek would be a really good cultural reference to uh, <laughs> add to this. I would maybe kind of make your approach a little more sophisticated. Um, you keep saying that we need to put capital back in the box. Yeah. Back in its box. But I think like, I mean, I think maybe you might be on board with this, but let me offer it. So, you know, in the first Shrek, because it is a series, I don't know if people are are as sophisticated enough to know that either. That's a little bit of a trivia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) at some point, I think it's the first one. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, the donkey Right, donkey. Yeah, you know that little sidekick yeah, played I'm by I'm familiar a voiced, with him. A given voice by Eddie Murphy. Yeah, uh, it uh, seduces, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and tames the dragon. Yeah. Right. So the big scary dragon, you know, it's oh, like I can't remember exactly what's happening. The dragon is uh, guarding. Uh, uh, what's the uh, Fiona? God, don't yeah. don't ask me how I know this. Um, <laughs> The dragon is guarding the princess, I believe, or something like that. I can't remember. And they seduce the dragon. And and this big, scary dragon that was once the villain and the dangerous thing, sort of, they bring the dragon to heal. And then Donkey gets to ride the dragon around and, like, make it fight for good, right? Oh, I literally love this. That's amazing. So this is the metaphor, right? So rather than not so much putting it back in its box, but we want to tame it and bring it it to heal so it can can fight our battles on our behalf. Yeah. Right? Oh, fantastic. That's such a great... Oh, thanks. Well, we can end on that. I'm, I'm really happy with that. <laughs> You've inspired me to go and write, Mike, write in Mike drop on the Shrek, Shrek reference. 
Yeah. Yeah. So just to offer that up, I don't know if you think I'd I'd love to hear you expound on that, but we're running out of time. I've got to let you go. Uh, Just give one final pitch for your book. I know it's one of those things where it's hard to say exactly when it will come out. You're in the midst of sort of like finishing the final chapters and and all of that. But but what's what's your tentative title? Uh, Tell us about your publisher and uh, tease it for us a little bit. So I'm publishing with Repeater Books, who are an excellent outlet, and it is going to be released hopefully August next year, so ahead of Labour Party conference. And our tentative title, again, I'm I'm not confirmed this, but me and my publisher both really like it, is um, Stolen, How Finance Took Over Our Economy and Corrupted Our Politics. Yes, I like it. I like Good. it. Good. It's kind of lure one them in, word. Lure them in with yeah. economic populism and then yeah. knock them upside the head with the Minsky. You know, it's oh, good. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. Finish Cheers. them off with a little Kaletsky. Rocking oh, a, of course. Rocking a leather jacket and a tracksuit. <laughs> All right. Enough of, the, enough of that, uh, Grace Blakely. Thank you so much for joining us on Dead Pun Society. We'd love to have you back and talk more in depth about these uh, topics in the future. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother...